John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look, he is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail, so it is to be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. In all the years I've been preaching and teaching the Bible, I've discovered that more people sign up for Bible courses when they know we're going to talk about Daniel or Revelation than sign up when we tell them we're going to talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Did you find that strange? In that the book of Revelation barely got into the Bible, it was a really close vote. And 500 years ago, when the Protestant Reformation began, Martin Luther said of this book, it is not theologically adequate. And the reformer Zwingli said, this is no biblical book. And John Calvin wrote 26 commentaries on the other 26 books of the New Testament and ignored Revelation entirely. Why do some people think it's so important? Because it has been taught by people who do not understand. It uses a special apocalyptic language. The word apocalypse has to do with revealing, showing, uncovering, if you would. But in fact, the very language itself often covers, does not reveal, does not show. I was just a boy, maybe third grade or so, and my memory when summertime had come, I went over to our next door neighbor's house. There were four houses at a little compressor station six miles outside of Carthage, Texas. The kid next door, everybody called Bud, he was my good friend. I went over to play Monopoly with Bud that summer morning, and his mother started telling me about church the night before. They didn't go to our church. They didn't go to church at all most of the time, but they had gone to this little church just right up the highway. They had a visiting evangelist in an old hot summertime revival. I'm sure he never had finished high school, and he told them all they ever wanted to know about the book of Revelation. And with our trying to roll the dice and move a token around a Monopoly board, she was telling these eight, nine-year-old boys about blood in horses' mouths, blood four feet deep covering the whole earth. I suspect that's why people want to know more about Daniel, more about Revelation, because they do not understand. And the reason mainline churches do not preach about it more often is that we know it doesn't say nearly as much as some people think it says. When Dr. Moose Metzger was here as our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter, you may recall, he was the chair of 34 scholars who had spent 17 years producing the new revised standard version of the Bible. And he reminded us that there are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. 404 verses, 278 of those verses 
are direct allusions to passages in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. So one needs to understand the Hebrew Bible if one is to understand Revelation. That's about 70% of all the verses in this book are direct allusions to something that was written in the Hebrew Scriptures before. Dr. Eugene Boring, who held a distinguished chair in New Testament studies at, Tulsa, at uh, Texas Christian University, TCU, Fort Worth, School of Theology there says, John's revelation has some important things to say to the church. It has no predictions about today's church. And what he means is, of course, that John is writing from an island. Gail and I have been there. It's not nearly so pretty as most of the Greek islands. It's a hundred kilometers off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It's about 62 miles. Can't see the Turkish coast from Patmos. Couldn't the day we were there. A guide said, we think that's the cave where John lived. We think that's the cave where John wrote. He is a political exile. Dr. Eugene Boring says that he probably wrote in the year 95 or 96. We know he wrote after the death of Nero. Nero committed suicide in 68. Most believe that he's talking about the reign of Domitian when he was the Caesar in Rome and Domitian served until 96. So somewhere between 68 and 96 this was written, but most scholars think the latter part, 95, 96 of the first century. Okay. What is John trying to say? He knows nothing about OPEC. He knows nothing about oil embargoes. He knows nothing about the Soviet bear. He knows nothing about the Warsaw Pact. He's writing from an island in the middle of the Mediterranean to seven little churches in an area called Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey, he's writing to these churches, trying to encourage them, encourage them, not discourage them. Let me mention four things from today's text. We'll get into this more and more with the next five Sundays. Notice that John begins by talking about grace and peace. Grace and peace from the one who was, is, is to be, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead. That, of course, is an allusion right away to the Exodus story of Moses being confronted by God at the burning bush. Moses asking for a new name that no one else had and being told, my name is Eye Asher Eye, I am who I am. Well, that one, the one who was and is and is to be forever, that one, and from his faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, be grace and peace. I talked about amazing grace just recently. What makes grace so amazing? It's unmerited love. It's unmerited favor. God wants good to come to you as much as he wants good to come to any other child of his, but not more than any other child of his. You know that I've been involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue for a long time now, since I had two professors back at Centenary College who had managed to escape the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. 
When I saw that our president was at Buchenwald on Friday, I looked at the pictures carefully on the news that evening because Gail and I were there just three weeks ago. We stood right where the president stood, right where Elie Wiesel was standing, where Merkel of Germany was standing. We stood there, that very spot where they were placing white roses on a memorial. In the background, you could see the brick building, which was and is still to this day the crematorium. You can see the ovens when you get inside that brick building. It was a cold day when Gail and I were there. It had rained the night before, and a north wind was whistling. Buchenwald is on a hill, a pretty steep hill, and you can see the outline of all those barracks where up to a hundred thousand people were confined at a given time. Elie Wiesel was there because Elie Wiesel was there in 1945 when liberation came. The clock at Buchenwald is forever frozen at the time of liberation. In the middle of the afternoon, Elie Wiesel was a teenage boy there. His father had died just a few weeks before, there at Buchenwald. What was so discouraging was to read again that this is the first U.S. president in 40 years, 60 years, ever to go to Buchenwald. That's the sad part. We make decisions about the world, and we've not been to those significant places that one cannot go without being changed forever. I've been involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue all these years. I've been a part of one group now for more than 25 years. We meet late on a Wednesday afternoon once a month. We met just last Wednesday. We take turns bringing materials. We, we, we sign up for a given month and we bring something that we've read that's been particularly meaningful or helpful. We send it out usually ahead of time so that the others can read it. We can talk about it when we come together. This past week, it was one of the Jewish members of our group's turn. He's a professor at the University of Tulsa and he's wonderful. He always has something really profound to say. And he brought us a reading. And he asked, who wants to read this part? Who wants to read that part? And so around the table, we went through this reading. It's from the Talmud, the Talmud, commentary on Hebrew scripture. There once was a famous rabbi named Elazar. He was a young rabbi, so he was still being tutored. And one day, after he'd spent the whole day being taught more and more about Torah, those first all-important five scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures, he was feeling really good about himself as he started home. He straddled his donkey and started riding along the river back home when suddenly he met a man who recognized him for what he was and said, Good Rabbi, Shalom to you. And this rabbi looked at him and thought he was the ugliest man he'd ever seen in his life. And so he said to him, Are you the ugliest man in your village, or are all of them as worthless as you? And the man said, You would have to ask the one who was my craftsman the answer to that question. And the rabbi realized what he had done. And he got down off his donkey on his knees and asked this man if he would forgive him. And the man said, that's not for me to do. I want you to go and ask the craftsman who made me. Ask him. And the point of this story was 
that we people of God are not to be hard like a cedar, they wrote, but pliant in dealings with each other like a reed. It was from the reed that pens were made to write Torah. Huh? This is not about blood in horses' mouths. This is about the grace and peace of the one who was and is and will forever be. Number two, John goes on to say about this first born from the dead, this Jesus Messiah, he's the one who loves us. And you and I know that Jesus loved us because God loved us. And God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to help us understand that. That we are loved. This great work of revelation is also going to be a book about love. The love of God. Unearned, unmerited. You see, like grace, love of God. Kate Laser is a preacher. Uh, she pastors a congregation up in Worcester, Massachusetts. She wrote recently for Christian Century Magazine that she's long had a recurring nightmare. She said, I went to college and seminary just seemed like forever. And I still have this nightmare from time to time where I've walked into a classroom and a professor says, take out your pens and papers, we're having a pop quiz. And she said, I wake up with perspiration pouring off my forehead because I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And if I do not do well, I may fail. Now she said, I have another recurring nightmare. I dream that I'm in a church I've never seen before. I hear the organ playing, but the organist I do not recognize. The choir is beginning to sing. I don't know any of them. The congregation has gathered. I don't know them. And someone is pointing to me and saying, you're the preacher today. And I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And then Kate wrote, there's a story in Mark's Gospel about Jesus having been pressed in almost into the lake, the Sea of Galilee, by the crowds when he says to the disciples, let's cross over to the other side. And Mark wrote these strange words. They took him into the boat just as he was. And Kate said, if I waited till I was truly ready, to explain the Word of God, I would be so frightened, I would never dare open my mouth. But He takes me as I am, as He takes you as you are. Just the way we are, He loves us. Number three, this faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, has loosed us from our sins. The New Revised Standard Version says freed. Freed us. 
I read six of the best commentaries I know on Revelation this week, and two of the six thought loosed was a better word. Loosed. He has loosed us from our sins. Whatever is dragging us back, slowing us down, keeping us from being everything God created us to be, He's cut you free from all of that. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal just the other day about a fellow named John McCandless Phillips. John McCandless Phillips was a feature writer for the New York Times newspaper for 25 years right out of college. Highly acclaimed, much admired. Those who worked with him in those crowded newsrooms of the New York Times said that when he got into his mid-40s, he did a strange thing. He suddenly brought a Bible to work and put it on the corner of his desk. Didn't mention it to anybody. They just noticed it was there. And sometimes when he was having a coffee break or getting a drink of water, they'd see him reading from the book, putting it back on the corner of the desk. One day when John McCandless Phillips was 46 years old, he walked in and said to his boss that he was resigning his position. He couldn't write for the New York Times any longer. Months later, the New Yorker magazine had a long article about him. They called it The Man Who Disappeared. But he didn't disappear. He was a co-founder of a little storefront church right in the middle of Manhattan Island. Say that he goes down to Central Park and if he sees somebody who seems all alone, discouraged, hurt, lost, he talks with them, offers them a copy of a New Testament if they'd like to have one. Goes into Grand Central Station. Most of the people there are rushing to catch a train, get off a train, get to work. Some people are not rushing. They seem confused, lost, don't know where to go next. John McCandless Phillips talks to them, offers them a New Testament. He left the New York Times when he was 46. He's 81. He's been doing this 31 years. And the Wall Street Journal sent a reporter to find him and say, what's going on with you these days? How big has your church grown? How many members do you have now, John? He said 33. 33. You've been doing this 35 years and you've got 33 members. That must be discouraging. And he said, well, it is a little. But I believe God helps folks to hear who want to hear the way I wanted to hear. I never had really heard God's story. And one day, I heard God's story. And it changed my life completely, forever. Number four. John begins his work by letting you know that he's not writing to Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 7, 2009. He thinks the end's going to come in his own lifetime. He believes with all his heart it's coming in his own lifetime. Most of those who wrote the New Testament believe the same. 
Paul really couldn't believe it as he got a little bit older that Jesus hadn't come back. When he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he was sure, next week, next month. When he was older, in his last writings that we have of his, Paul's finally decided that he's not going to live to see Jesus come back either. He's going to die before Jesus comes back. But he still thinks it's soon, maybe next year, two years, three years from now. John believed the same. He says three times in these first few verses, very soon, very soon, look, he is coming. Dr. Fred Craddock, I've mentioned to you any number of times, he's a Barton Clinton Gordy presenter of years ago, more than 30 years ago before I came here. He was a professor at Phillips Theological Seminary in Enid, Oklahoma, when the seminary was still there before it came to Tulsa, years before it came to Tulsa. We Methodists heard about Fred Craddock, decided he was an unusual talent, and lured him away to our Methodist seminary at Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, offered him a prestigious endowed chair, and he taught there until he came to retirement age. Fred Craddock comments on passages like this one by saying, it's been over 2,000 years, he hasn't come back yet, but millions of us have gone to meet him. So whether first he comes or we go, tomorrow we meet the Lord. Michael Caine, still making movies, doesn't look like Alfie anymore. He's 76. Michael Caine is playing roles appropriate to his age. His latest movie is called, Is Anybody There? It's a low-budget movie, not going to attract millions of viewers, isn't going to make a billion dollars. It's about a 76-year-old man whose wife has died, and he's going to a nursing home. Doesn't want to go to a nursing home. Doesn't want to be a widower. But that's what he is, and that's where he's going. And the other central figure is a 10-year-old boy. He's around the nursing home all the time because his mother and father run the nursing home. And they put in long hours looking after the people who live there. And there's no other place for him to be when he's not in school except at the nursing home. Michael Caine realizes right away that people come to this nursing home and some live a while, some not so long. But they all die, and the ten-year-old boy is observing the same thing. He sees new residents coming in, and he sees funeral coaches pulling up to the back door and taking people out. The screenplay was written by a man whose history this is. He was that ten-year-old boy. He did grow up at a nursing home because his mother and father ran it. He became a screenwriter. He's telling his story. That as a 10-year-old boy, he wondered what happens when people die. What do they say? What do they do? He asked questions. People ignored him. 
didn't give him the answers he wanted, so he started trying to figure out who would be the next one to die. He listened really carefully to what his mom and dad were saying about the various residents and tried to figure out who was going to be the next one to die. This was years ago when he was a 10-year-old boy, so in the movie he has an old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and he starts sliding it under the bed of the person he thinks is going to be the next one to die to see if he can record what happens, what do they say when they die. He doesn't get the answer. He hears struggled breathing sometimes. Sometimes nothing. But if he had a different kind of microphone, a different kind of recording equipment, maybe he could hear them say, the time is near. Look, he's coming. <laughs>